Coming to you from high in the hills of Oakland, California, this is Radio Free Cannabis, voice of the global cannabis freedom movement. I'm your host, Steve D'Angelo. Hello, friends, and welcome to another episode of Radio Free Cannabis, coming to you from high in the hills of Oakland, California, and translated into 195 different languages, we are the voice of the global cannabis freedom movement. Thanks so much for subscribing to this podcast, for sending us all of your notes and your questions. Please keep on doing that and remind your friends, let your friends know about this podcast, ask them to subscribe, and continue supporting the companies that support us, Harborside, Homegrown, Liberty Clothing, and there's a new company that I've been highlighting because they make really amazing hemp products. They're called Hemp Zoo. You can find them at hempzoo.com. And this week, I just want to show you their socks. And these socks make my feet happy. I mean, I put them on and I like want to dance. They make my feet as happy as ingesting some cannabis into my body makes my soul happy. They breathe and they, they're just really cool. So if you need some new socks, check out one pair of these. I think you'll be going back for more. So uh, today we're going to continue our ongoing exploration of the connection between cannabis and music. It's a connection that has a long and rich history. My study of the plant tells me that almost every cannabis-consuming culture has developed a musical genre or genres that are closely associated with the plant. Most of these genres, created before music was recorded and broadcast, are relatively unknown today, already forgotten or almost forgotten in the mists of time. Like the Rembetica music of Greece, whose popularity rose and fell, along with the fortunes of the Greek hashish trade. This is back at the turn of the 19th century. But in the modern era, since the advent of recording and broadcasting, we've seen cannabis-fueled musical genres jump the boundaries of the cultures that originally created them and become global languages, crossing national borders and ethnicities, open to endless local adaptations and reworkings of the theme. Jazz, reggae, and hip-hop all fall into this category. All were born in small, insular, cannabis-loving communities of the African diaspora, but are listened to today by people of all races in every country on the planet. These genres have become the soundtrack of our modern lives. It's difficult to imagine what our world would sound like without them. And their similarity of message is striking. All of these cannabis-fueled genres emphasize the need for peace, for self-love, for individual freedom, for racial harmony, for justice for the oppressed, and they emphasize a love of cannabis. I got a sense of the impact that all that messaging has had last year as I visited cannabis communities in four different continents. Wherever I went, I asked young activists how they had first learned about cannabis, about what set them on their path. And the answer I received most was reggae music. Reggae music was their first source of accurate information on the plant, their first introduction to cannabis as a medicine. 
the first time they'd seen cannabis placed in a spiritual context, the first time they became aware of the movement to legalize the plant. And then there's this very cool generational thing that's going on. All over the world, young musicians who learned about cannabis and reggae from Jamaican artists have formed their own bands, written their own songs, and they've integrated the other sounds they grew up with in, in their regions and countries, singing in their own languages. And now these second wave bands have in turn inspired others to follow in their path, expressing the vibration and values of reggae in an ever-expanding range of flavors. You know, today, reggae is being sung in an amazing array of languages, like everything from Spanish to Swedish to Vietnamese and Japanese and Chinese. But they all celebrate cannabis. This transition, this movement from small subcultures into the global mainstream, has raised some very interesting questions in the world of reggae. Some of the same questions that are also being asked about the legal cannabis industry. How do we stay true to our roots? What is and isn't authentic? What debt do the newcomers owe to the pioneers? How do we distinguish between selling out and scaling up? How do we actually manifest the values the plant teaches us in our material world projects? Our guest today, a dear friend of mine, Eric Rachmani, has been at the center of this new evolution in reggae music. As the lead singer and songwriter for the California-born brand Revolution, Eric is one of the most popular reggae stars on the planet, but he's not black or Jamaican. His music celebrates the spiritual powers of cannabis and calls for the liberation of the plant, but he's not explicitly Rastafarian. Eric is one of the most recognized proponents of a new style of reggae, but has still earned the respect of pioneers from Jamaica. Revolution has climbed a rapid and steep arc of success. They launched in UC Santa Barbara, the university there. They were all going to school in 2004. Their first album, three years later, Courage to Grow, hit number four on the Billboard reggae charts. Their next one, Bright Side of Life, hit number one, and from there the bands never looked back. Reggae legends Don Carlos and Collie Buds appeared on their fourth album, Count Me In, which Billboard named as the second best-selling, as the best-selling reggae album of that year. Not the second, but the best-selling reggae album of the year. Their fifth album, Falling Into Place, got them their first Grammy nomination. The sixth one featured collaborations with acclaimed Jamaican producers Don Corleone and went to James and since then, they've gone on to release two more albums, and everything they've done has just shot to the top of the charts. Eric, congratulations on the success, and welcome to Radio Free Cannabis. Thanks for having me, Steve. So um, we're going to dig deep into music uh, in, uh, in a little bit, but I, I wanted to go back and, and explore the part of Eric's life that was before you were this globally famous, adored pop star. Um, and, you know, you lived through a really transformational period in the history of cannabis, and you were right at the epicenter of that change uh, here in the Bay Area. And so I'm wondering if you could take us back to, you know, those, those early days of cannabis in the Bay Area at the time you were growing up, and, and, and if you could you know, sort of describe what it was like then and 
and, and what it's like now, how it's changed over that period of time. Well, Steve, thanks for having me. Um, I'm a big admirer of what you do and your activism and um, bringing normalcy to uh, cannabis and uh, spreading that spreading that message. I think we're all kind of on that same uh, mission in a sense, amongst other things. But growing up in the Bay Area, San Francisco specifically, uh, it's a pretty progressive place historically and cannabis was pretty normal growing up. Um, you'd smell it around, you'd see it around. But for me, it was always something that I had to hide um, in a sock drawer or just keep it low at all times, even in San Francisco, such a progressive place. And I think a lot of that had to do with my family and their viewpoints on cannabis, their perspective about it. Um, it was something that I felt I really had to hide at all times, even in San Francisco. And it's definitely changed. Um, it's becoming nor more normal, even in the Bay Area. Um, but I feel very fortunate to grow up in such a progressive place where I could see the normalcy of cannabis and not to fear it. And, um, you know, I can't imagine if I grew up somewhere else where potentially you um, have some serious penalties, um, even just outside of, of the Bay Area, you know, that might be the case for people. So I felt very lucky I got to grow up there. And um, it's definitely, it's definitely become more normal. And there's a lot of uh, topics to discuss why that's happened. And just being a musician that's talked about cannabis, you know, I'm very proud of what I've done and what revolution has done and the stance that we've taken. And it certainly hasn't been easy. Um, it's a choice that we had to make back when we first got started in 2004, but it felt like a choice we that we, um, we needed to make. And I'm so glad we did. That, uh, that's uh, really um, interesting to me, this, uh, this kind of difference between the environment that you grew up in, which was fairly tolerant of cannabis, and then your family environment, which, which was, was less tolerant of cannabis. Now you, you, but you did come out, right? You came out in a big way. Um, uh, and uh, so um, what, how has that been with your family now that you've embraced cannabis publicly? Did, have you guys had the cannabis conversation? We did. And I think it was a little difficult for my family, especially the elders in the family to accept. And boy, I can't tell you what, um, I can't tell you how proud I am that we took that stance because it's really affected their lives uh, in a better way. Cannabis now is seen for the medicinal purposes. Um, it's seen as something not to fear. I never would have thought that my mom uh, or even my aunts and uncles and cousins and grandparents would see cannabis the way they do now. And it's pretty incredible. Uh, you know, once you actually learn uh, about the plant, you understand that it's really nothing to fear and that there's so many incredible benefits that you can get from cannabis. So, you know, in a way, in a way I've been educated um, through music, particularly reggae music regarding cannabis. 
And in turn, I feel like I've done the same uh, with our music and as well as just having that conversation with family members and friends and just talking about it. And uh, you start to understand that there's been a lot of lies that have been uh, uh, interjected into, into people's brains about cannabis. And um, that stuff needs to be cleared up. And one great way to do that is through the arts, through musical expression. And so that's why we've, we've taken that route and, and done that. So we're gonna we're gonna pick up this theme of of reggae as a teacher about cannabis a little bit further on podcast, but let's start digging in into the to your music just a little bit here. And um, you know, one of the songs that really spoke to me was your song "Green to Black," and I'm just gonna read a few of the lyrics there so that we can discuss them for benefit of the audience who's not familiar with this. And forgive me, Eric, I'm not going to read them nearly as beautifully as you sing them. Um, Green to black, this is just one of the verses. Much respect to all the people thinking green, not just the color, but the message in between. Here's a mental weapon that you use frequently to stop evil people and end their beliefs. So I love this, this line, not just the color, not just the color, but the message in between. Um, what is that message? What does that message say? Well, we're talking about, obviously, we're talking about cannabis here. Um, I think when cannabis is utilized, there's a great sense of creativity. There's a great sense of unification. There's a great motivation and inspiration to do something to unify people, a great inspiration to actually go out and be active. I, I never understood when people talked about cannabis as sort of a lazy drug. That was the very, very, um, very opposite. Um, I, I couldn't find it to be more opposite for me. Every time that I would use cannabis, I would want to do something um, to better the lives of myself and other people. And so when I talk, when I say that line, um, to stop evil people and, and their beliefs, um, there's, there's multiple ways to, to analyze that. But when I think about it, I think about the history of cannabis and, and uh, you know, with the amount of benefits from cannabis, you know, we see how much good it does for, for medicinal purposes. And, you know, you know, when I think about the evil people, I think of, for instance, the pharmaceutical companies that have tried to bring it down and keep it, you know, out of the hands of people when for centuries and centuries, people have used this plant for, you know, to cure multiple, uh, um, you know, disorders and, and issues going on in the body. Um, and at times it really angers me uh, because it's been deprived from people. It's been criminalized, right? Um, and so when I use cannabis, it makes me want to educate people about it. So this is the message. It, it's to normalize the plant. It's to understand what it can do for people. And in turn, we're going to take down the people that have tried to take it down. So uh, that's my thinking in that song. And, and with my experience growing up with my family that, that just didn't know enough about it, music's a great tool to get the education to people, to get that message out, just in the same way that you know, music has educated me. Yeah, you know, I I think that that that, that verse and, and a lot of what you write 
has the power or gets part of the power from the the way that different people can hear those words and put their own layers of meaning on them. So, you know, as somebody who's been engaged in fighting the drug war bureaucracy my whole life, I start thinking about people like Harry Anslinger and Richard Nixon and uh, all of the wars that, uh, that these people have started. When I think about the, uh, the evil people and their beliefs, I think about racism. I think about uh, this idea that, um, that being wealthy is more important than being loving. And, uh, and cannabis is, is so powerful in helping teach us lessons about those things. Let's stay on the music for a little bit because another one of the things that I've really come to appreciate about your music is, is this, you know, like, well, some of your songs, I listen to them and um, let's see, I'd say that Against the Grain and Rise on Top are a couple of examples of them. But the way that, that, like when I listen to them, they speak to me as an individual human being about my personal development and, and where I want to guide my life. But they also operate on this level of, of like really being a call to action of, of something that we all should come together to do. And I'm just wondering about this theme because it, it seems to weave through a, a lot of your songs, this relationship between personal development and liberation and connection. Well, you hit it right on the on the dot there. Um, you know, I think at some point you have to ask yourself, do you do you fight for yourself or do you fight for humanity? And I think, you know, to fight for humanity, you have to have that personal development. You have to have that personal encouragement. And that's a big part to our music, a big part to our lyrical themes is to gain that confidence. And a great way to do that is through the music and through lyrics, just the way that music has done that for me. Um, and so I think that, you know, this is something this is something where you don't have to choose between personal development and social justice. You know, you, you, you can do both, but I think you have to have that personal development to fight for social justice. I think a lot of people, they'll turn on the news or they'll read something and just get depressed. And I'm, I'm like that too, you know, especially in this time during the election, um, I get like that. And I know that it takes a lot of, you know, personal encouragement to get back out there and to fight for what I think is right and fight for humanity, like I was just saying. So I think these songs like Against the Grain and Rise on Top aren't necessarily about a specific thing, but more to encourage the listener to get out and to make a difference. So, you know, I think, I think it's important to, to have both really. Hey, I couldn't agree with you more. One of the places that I've really seen this operate is in the work that I've been doing with Last Prisoner Project in welcoming home released cannabis prisoners. And one of the things that, that happens when people have been imprisoned for years on cannabis charges and just surrounded by a lot of evil messaging constantly, 24-7, 365 for years on end, is that there's this sense of shame that creeps into their souls about what they have done and and the and the choices that they've made in their lives and they they come out of the the prison experience really you know with a with a with a real problem in terms of self-esteem and self-respect and rebuilding their lives and 
one of the things that that's happened as I've engaged with some of my friends who are recently out of prison and involved them in cannabis activism work is that as they start understanding this greater dynamic that they have been caught up in, this dynamic of cannabis prohibition, as they understand the reasons that cannabis prohibition was put into place, their sense of self-esteem and their sense of hope returns and it starts returning. And so, you know, we've all grown up in a dysfunctional world. Uh, some of us more privileged, some of us less privileged, but we've all been wounded in, in one way or another. And I don't think that any of us are going to really be able to fully understand our way out of our personal wounds or find our way to healing ourselves as a community um, without holding both of these things at the same time. Uh, this, 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 this personal development and this need to really to change the world. And so, you know, thank you for the work that you've done in those, in those songs. It, it really, it's worked for me. I think you are absolutely right. And I think it's something that everybody can relate to. It's a big reason why that theme has not died in Revolution's lyrics, because it's easier said than done to just 100% of the time you know, have that that energy um, to go out and, and make a difference. I, I'm like the listeners. I, I, I've been there, you know, I've been depressed. I've, I've seen um, my family have a history of, of that depression and that just, um, just that, that, uh, that troublesome view of the world where you don't feel like you're making a difference. And if, if one song can get to somebody's soul to, to help them get back out there and fight for humanity, like I was just saying, then, you know, to a certain extent, I feel like I've, I've done a good job. Um, and I know it's, for me, being able to do that through the music is very important. I, it's hard for me just to sit here and encourage people with my words, just talking. But when I have a microphone or a guitar, I can get to people. And uh, it's a be the beauty of art, right? Well, it is, you know, we all have our, our different artistic talents. We express them in different ways. And, uh, and for those of our audience who have not seen Eric with a guitar in his hand, uh, singing his songs, you definitely need to remedy that as soon as this podcast ends. Um, you know, I, um, I learned about revolution and became familiar with revolution's music and act, uh, out of the common work that Eric and I have done with the last prisoner project. And, you know, when I went to my first revolution concert, I was expecting you know, a typical reggae band, struggle and strife and dreadlocks and flags. And I walked into the Greek theater in Berkeley and it was, it was this quite different scene um, where yes, there was a really strong reggae vibration that was happening, but there were also, all of these other elements, musical elements, uh, uh, vibrational elements, there was jazz, there was rock, there was singer-songwriter stuff. I'll never forget the, uh, the tribute that you got when everybody held up their phones and their lighters, and it, you could hear a pin drop in, in that auditorium, the, the sense of connection that you had with, with your audience. So I, you know, I came away, um, really, you know, starting to think about reggae in a different way. I think that's when I started really, um, exploring this idea of second and third and fourth wave, uh, reggae bands. So, 
how do how do you see yourself fitting in this kind of dynastic constellation scene of of reggae? Where does Revelation fit in there? That's a great question. And uh, you know, my initial reaction was yes, this is a, a second wave. And then I thought about how many different subgenres of reggae music there are in the history of reggae music coming from Jamaica and just the way that it is spread all over the world. It's very difficult to categorize reggae music and it's very even more difficult to categorize reggae inspired and influenced music like revolution um just like you said our music has a lot of reggae fundamentals and it also has a lot of rock jazz hip-hop folk music singer songwriter acoustic and in a way i think our sound is very original in that sense. Um, I think a lot of the reggae inspired influence bands out of the United States have a very unique original sound that we've developed. It's not just revolution. Um, but I do think that revolution is, uh, we're not afraid to incorporate those other musical styles into our music. So when you do come to a show, you will hear that the stuff that you just mentioned. Um, when we first got started, we were just a cover band. We, we wanted to cover our favorite reggae songs, mostly roots reggae. And at the time, I think that was a movement that was also happening around California. And we saw a lot of reggae inspired groups in the early 90s, mid 90s, like Sublime is a great example of a band inspired by reggae music. But they sort of had a more punk rock, alternative rock sound to their music. And I think bands like Revolution, Slightly Stupid, Tribal Seeds, Iration, a lot of us are really into roots reggae, which means a lot of the traditional um, sounds and melodies that from artists that we are into, you know, from Jamaica specifically. Um, and then after a while writing our own original tunes, we started incorporating our other musical influences that we grew up with. So like alternative rock, hip hop, jazz, folk music. Um, and I think the revolution sound is this incredible mix of genres. And uh, not, not to go too far off what we were just talking about, but it's very difficult for me to categorize revolution sound. Um, I don't know. I don't know how to call, I don't know whether to say we are a reggae band or not. When people say we are reggae, I accept that. And I'm very honored because, um, you know, I feel like, I, I hope that we are paying homage to the reggae genre, the way I think we are. Um, and then on the other hand, when people say that we're not reggae, I completely accept that as well because we are a different sound. And there's a lot of lyrical stuff that we're not talking about that a lot of reggae music has. And um, at the end of the day, I think it's important to stay authentic. And a big part to authenticity is talking about your own experience. And that's something that we've done lyrically. Uh, and I can't speak for everybody else, but I know that it wouldn't feel comfortable speaking on behalf of somebody that grew up in Jamaica or, or had a, a different experience than me. Um, but 
you know, going back to it, I, I'm, I'm honored to be a part of the reggae movement. And certainly reggae is a big part to our foundation. Um, but I also accept when people say that's not, that's not reggae to me. I, I do. I really do accept that. There's this, you know, this very interesting question about authenticity, and and yeah, you know, I think that you and 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 North American reggae in general, and and for that matter, probably Chinese and Vietnamese reggae, have been criticized as being inauthentic or as some kind of form of of cultural appropriation. But you know, when I listen to to your music, it feels deeply authentic to me. I can hear where you grew up, right? I can hear the sunniness and the optimism of Santa Cruz, of Santa Barbara, of California, of the Bay Area. And it's, it's not, you know, it, you're not going to make the same sound if you come out of that milieu as if you came out of milieu in, in Trenchtown. And so I'm, I'm a little bit baffled by, by these critiques. Um, what I think is really important as somebody who's worked to represent this plant my whole life is 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 the spirit that's expressed the lessons that are conveyed is this incredibly adaptable genre of music uh, being respected and honored by continuing to carry the values that its creators thought were important forward and as long as we do that i, I think that that you know combine it with an infinite variety of musical genres sing it in an infinite variety of, 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 of languages. I think that what would be important to Bob Marley and to Peter Tosh and to all the other great pioneers is, is the ideas that we're carrying forward, the idea of one love, the idea of respecting a mother nature, the idea of, of, of harmony between races and between nations. And, uh, and so I, you know, I, I think that authenticity is, is, is something that's important because it's important that that we speak what we believe and that we believe what we speak. I also think that there's, you know, some really muddy thinking that's going on about, about authenticity. One thing, one mission we have as a band is to make sure that reggae culture where it began is not lost. And one way that we feel we can do that is to spread awareness about our influences, um, talk about, how we got into reggae music, talk about the reggae legends so that people that are just finding the reggae genre, maybe through revolution for the first time, know where reggae music came from, know that it originated in Jamaica, understand where, where reggae culture comes from. And I'm talking about the location. And then, you know, when you start to understand that, you, you get how deep rooted, um, certain topics are in reggae music, particularly um, Rastafari is a great example of that. And I don't want that to be lost. I don't want that history lesson to be lost because revolution, we're not giving a history lesson on Rastafari. Um, we're not giving a history lesson on the, you know, the Afrocentric ideologies or the African diaspora or the teachings of Marcus Garvey. And that's all things that that need to be that people need to be aware of. They need to know how reggae music came to be, um, and in turn, people get a, an incredible history lesson. I mean, I can't tell you how much I learned just from listening to reggae music that I didn't learn in school, you know. And I got a really good education in San Francisco, um, 
But, you know, talking about the degree of authenticity, I think there's a lot people take from reggae music that they can apply to their own community, their own upbringing. And cannabis is a great one because all over the world, people have used cannabis and reggae music has, has educated me about cannabis more than any other music or any other book or any, I mean, it's incredible what I have learned from uh, about cannabis with reggae music. And I think that's one topic where people take uh, from reggae music and they, they, they make their own songs about it, you know, in Vietnamese, in Chinese, in, in Espanol, you know, it's incredible because that is a theme people really can be unified behind. So for us, I've taken, for Revolution, I've taken a lot of things I've learned from reggae music, particularly things that I can relate to. And I think in that degree, there's an authenticity to the way Revolution has adapted our, our reggae um, inspiration, if that makes any sense. Well, Eric, you're certainly not alone in that regard. I can tell you that, you know, then by my informal survey of cannabis activists, entrepreneurs, uh, investors, uh, people all around the world, all the different continents that I visited, that probably the single number one most frequently given answer to my question, how did you learn about cannabis, was reggae music. Uh, and it just like everywhere that I went, you know, it was the same thing. And so it has been this really, really powerful means of spreading the truth about cannabis all around the world. And now there are partly, not partly, but largely to the power of reggae music and the messages it's carried. There are hundreds of millions of people around the world who have developed a relationship with the cannabis plant. We are in all races, all religions. We come from all countries. We come from different economic backgrounds and educational levels. But we've all had the same experiences with cannabis. And those experiences have taught us a set of common lessons. And I believe that out of those lessons, we have developed a common value system, a value system that honors creativity over conformity, that honors freedom over authority, that honors Mother Earth over industry and the creation of wealth that demands that that all people be included and be treated with respect and so i've i've started you know thinking of this aggregation this hundreds of millions of us and you know collectively we are larger than all but the largest nations on this planet and and so i'm i'm thinking of of this community of people and i've been using this term one tribe um, that we are one tribe because we do share this value system. And I, I just wanted to query you on that. You know, I, I like to double check that concept with, with my guests and, and see whether it resonates for them and their experience. Absolutely. I love that. And, it, you know, going back on it, it's incredible that one type of music has educated people about this plant uh, through creativity and, you know, what has come from it? Like, uh, I wonder any sort of negative consequence from the education of cannabis to people listening to it in the music. And, 
you know, it's just incredible to see how many people can relate to one particular thing without speaking the same language. It's something that's relatable. It's something that people can get behind. And through this artistic expression, it's only getting bigger and bigger. And coming from San Francisco, like I was saying at the beginning of this, it felt pretty normal. But now, you know, just seeing how, how well known um, the benefits are from cannabis, I'm just so, I'm so happy and proud of the movement that we are a part of to, to get that out to people. I mean, Steve, I can't tell you how many fans we have, you know, across the seas and particularly in a place uh, um, in Indonesia. And Indonesia has some very, very harsh uh, laws against cannabis. And knowing that there are people that are listening to our music, and I'm, I'm talking thousands and thousands of people, we see it on, on our stats. And, um, you know, it makes me feel like I'm, I'm doing something very important, um, just bringing that awareness, you know, and that's a start, right? Just bringing the awareness to the people that, that perhaps cannabis isn't something to fear, uh, like maybe a government has told them or, you know, a generation above them. Um, and, and that's what happened with me, even growing up in San Francisco, the most, like one of the most progressive places on earth. So you can't imagine what it's like in other places in the world. Music's a great way to educate people. And um, that's why we'll continue. That's why I'm on this with you. That's why I'm talking about it. That's why I'm supporting Last Prisoner. Um, it, it feels like something that I have to do. And, um, and I really give credit to what you're doing, Steve, because a lot of people, you know, might just monetize off of cannabis in their lives and that's it, you know? And, you know, you're doing this because, you, you know, you think like me, you, you, you wanna spread the awareness um, about the plant, about the benefits of it. And at the same time, get some people out of prison that are locked away for something as ridiculous as cannabis possession. So uh, thank you. Well, um that's a great segue for us to start talking about the last prisoner project. And I think that most viewers uh, and listeners on this show are familiar with the last prisoner project and what it is. What um, much of our audience probably doesn't know yet is that Eric was really the earliest and most steadfast supporter. Um, his manager, Dean rain, Dean Rays was one of the uh, original founding board members of the last prisoner project. And I, I, there's just a very long list of wonderful things that Eric has done to help support the organization, including appearing at some benefit concerts where I, I really wish I hadn't subjected him to the environments that he was in. Um, he uh, has donated very generously. One of the most amazing things that Eric did was a, a great acoustic tour uh, that he did before things got weird. And, uh, and I actually had the opportunity to uh, be on a couple of dates on that acoustic tour and, uh, and actually speak to the audience. And I, again, was just so struck by the power of, of your connection with your audience, um, just like this very evident heart-to-heart -heart connection. And, uh, and so I, I, you know, I appreciate very much you continuing to use that influence and that power that you have to help educate people uh, about cannabis. You know, one of the ways that 
I, I started developing this concept of one tribe was out of my travels uh, around the world. And I started hanging out and going from cannabis conference to cannabis conference. And, and, and I would find myself with, you know, 20, 25 different cannabis people from all over the world, different languages, different races, everything different about us you could imagine except cannabis. And we immediately, despite all of our differences, just fell into a very cool group with each other. We liked going to the same places and doing the same things. We had the same kind of reactions when we saw things happening. Um, uh, we had it, this, this, this common value system. And so I'm wondering, you know, how has it been for you touring around the world in some of your international work uh, with uh, with musicians who come from from different places who are also cannabis people has has there been a, a sense of commonality there and maybe tell us about one or two of those experiences first talking about the uh, acoustic tour that uh, we did and you, you were on that tour um, I obviously I think raising money is a very important thing to get uh, an organization off the ground but really the best part about that tour was just raising awareness about the Last Prisoner Project, because this is something that is really in the grand scheme of things just starting. And, you know, for people, people need to know that there are prisoners, nonviolent prisoners, uh, locked away for life sentences because of, of cannabis. Uh, so yes, a, a, a purchase, a ticket purchase is great because it helps raise money or buying a t-shirt or hat that helps to raise money, but spreading the word about it is equally as important, if not more important, um, so that we, we keep this movement up. And that's important regardless of, of who ends up being president uh, in the next election. We still need to push on both, I think both, I think every can candidate needs that push to get these people out of prison and, um, but uh, uh, you know, going back to that tour and seeing just the people in the crowd and um, the different musicians we had on the road with us, um, I, of course, there's a commonality that we all share. Um, I think our fans are like family, and it feels like there is this incredible energy at the shows. When that show is done, to leave and go do something productive in the community. And Last Prisoner is a great, great way to get started. Um, sh most likely there's someone in your community that has been locked away for a cannabis sentence, right? And a lot of people might have a family member or a friend. Um, I certainly do. And um, that's one reason why I really enjoy supporting the Last Prisoner Project is for that reason. But just having that camaraderie with the artist and the listener at those shows like I leave the show wanting to be productive and they leave the show, you know, wanting to be productive. Again, music and artistic expression is a great inspiration uh, tool. So uh, in, th in that regard, we, we have a lot of commonalities um, when we are together uh, listening, playing music, uh, enjoying some sort of artistic expression. And um, no matter, where you come from you could be an international player and you know or or an international listener and we have that inspiration to go out and do something you know when we listen to music reggae and cannabis peace and love all around the world it's spreading it's happening 
Um, you know, one of the reasons that I like having you as a friend is your generosity of spirit, uh, the way that uh, you do things like the Last Prisoner Project. And I'm, I want to share with the audience what you did with your uh, album. I think it was the third album, right? Uh, Peace of Mind. Uh, and the choices that you made uh, uh, around it. Um, could you tell us a little bit about that? You might be referring to that it was a sort of a triple release. We put the album out and we also had a, a dub version of the album. And dub music is a real emphasis on drum and bass. It's sort of an instrumental remix version of uh, the song. And um, typically without vocals, sometimes vocals come in. Uh, a great form of music that's very related to reggae music. Uh, I'm sure most of you guys uh, know what dub music is. And then also we released an acoustic version of Peace of Mind. And I think that album was very special for us because it demonstrated, you know, we can go a lot of different ways with music. Uh, we aren't tied down just to one sound. Um, it shows our musical influences a little bit better than the last, the, the previous two albums. And that was a very important album because it encouraged us to be free with the music, not feel like we were tied down to anything, not trying to hit a certain demographic, just be honest with ourselves uh, and our creativity and not worry about how people are going to perceive it. I think one advice I could give to musicians out there is to just be yourself. Um, and when there is that authenticity in the writing process, in the performing process, in the recording process, that's when music really has some substance. And I try to take that mentality when I'm performing live just to get into the art and don't worry about weird faces I might be making when I'm playing a solo or, you know, how weird I think my voice sounds. Um, you know, if you can get past that and just be true to yourself and, and have that artistic uh, freedom, then I think you're going to make some great music and perform some great music. You know, for, for, for most of human history, before we had recording, before we had pop stars, human beings sang to sing with each other. We sang to express what is in our hearts, to share what's in our hearts with each other, to to get into a common flow with each other. And it wasn't about performance. And I think that that we've lost a lot of that today. One of the really cool things that I've started doing while I'm in quarantine is taking singing lessons remotely, virtually. And I never thought that, that I would be able to sing. Uh, and, and in doing that, I've, uh, I've connected with just this real this joy of expressing yourself of whoa and um and i think that uh uh that 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 place is really the place that touches people it's the place that really moves people and and the very best music whether it's performative or otherwise comes out of that comes out of that place um Let's talk a little bit about your your ancestry and the ancestry of some of the people in the band. Um, one of the things that I love about cannabis is the way that it serves as a bridge 
a way that it introduces people like reggae music does who may never have met each other from completely different backgrounds. And, you know, I, I think about your ethnicity, which I'd like you to talk about. I think about Dean Rays, the manager of the band, who's a white South African guy who's devoted his life to spreading this, um, this revolutionary reggae music uh, all around the world. Um, so how's that, how's your ancestry and how's the mix of ancestries in the band been? How's that affected your work and your perspective? That's a good question. I grew up uh, in a Persian Jewish household. Uh, my dad was born in Iran and my mom was born in New York, but her parents were born in Iran. And both my mom and dad come from Persian Jewish uh, ancestry. My dad from Shiraz, which is uh, one of the bigger cities in uh, Iran. And my mom's side of the family is from Tehran. And my mom and dad met in United States. My dad was a Israeli folk dance teacher. And my mom was a big admirer of world music and world dance. And, uh, you know, they obviously had a, a commonality. Um, and I grew up listening to a lot of world music. Uh, and I think that's one big reason why my vocals have a sort of Middle Eastern, um, Sort of tint to the sound. Uh, I think it's one reason why, you know, my voice stands out maybe in the band and maybe in the scene. Uh, I used to hate my own voice and I've come to like it because I just, I feel like it's different and unique and characteristic. Uh, but that took a while to, to be comfortable with. Um, so I encourage you, <laughs> Steve, to just go with it and embrace whatever voice you have because it's it's unique Steve D'Angelo no matter what you no matter what you uh, think about it but um, talking about the other guys it's great we come from different places in California our bass player comes from Mendocino County uh, Point Arena which is a, a beautiful little town up in Mendo uh, right on the coast uh, Point Arena is one of the first places we played as a band outside of Santa Barbara. Uh, people so welcoming and very generous in whatever harvest, you know, they had to, to kick down to us whenever we went up there. I've come to really love that part of Northern California. And our, our keyboard player is from San Diego, uh, Rory Carey. And our drummer is from Prunedale, which is pretty close to Monterey, California, pretty close to Salinas. So we come from different parts of California, different upbringings. And we all found each other because of a love for reggae music. Like I was saying earlier, we were listening to reggae and other types of music and we found each other through the music classes and kind of just through the scene at uh, in Santa Barbara and Isla Vista. But we, we just wanted to celebrate the songs that we loved. So we were a cover band, you know? Uh, and then as I was saying, as time went by, we started writing original tunes. We brought in our musical influences. And a lot of that has to do with the way that we grew up. Marley being a, a you know, someone that had gone to reggae on the river in Humboldt County every single year of his life, including when he was in the womb. 
he just grew up in that area. And so he was very, very familiar with reggae music since he was a young kid. Um, for me, on, you know, getting into reggae music at the age of 16, 17, I had a lot of catching up to do. I had a lot of researching to do. Reggae hit me all at once. And I think it was pretty similar to our drummer as well. He came from a more alternative music background. And so for him to learn about reggae music at a later, later age and ultimately learn about it through you know, me and Marley and Rory, um, it was a very cool, unique experience to see what you know, kind of reggae music he identified with and what he didn't. And then Rory being such a, a big scholar about the life of Bob Marley and just being a, such a huge fan of his music and message, you know, he really um, taught us a lot about Bob Marley's upbringing and, you know, the, 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 the time in which he wrote, you know, every album, his social, uh, his, his contribution to social issues, um, his political um, campaigns in Jamaica, his notion of, of one love and his, you know, attempt to bring peace amongst everybody in Jamaica and everywhere he traveled to was incredibly inspiring. So together when you put all four of us, um, it's 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 an incredible history lesson, you know. When you 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 li you listen to what other people listen to, you know. When when Rory is throwing in some incredible Bob Marley material, and Marley showing me Israel Vibration and Culture and Steel Pulse and Toots and the Maytals, uh, you know. When when you get together and you show all these different influences and and songs and artists, it's very ins inspirational to to write your own music. So in that regard we get along very well as a band because we're constantly throwing each other music that, that we know each other will like. Again, you know, these themes that we, that keep on recurring as we look at the fabric, as we look at the tapestry of cannabis and music, the way that it provides a canvas for all of us to bring our own individual colors to, to bring our own individual flavors to, and the way how out of that blending out of that, mixing that we create these just amazing inspiring uh, pieces of art and so truly we know because we live it every day that diversity is our strength so eric what's uh what's on the horizon for you uh what are you working on now what we can look for you look for look from for from look for from you in the future <laughs> <laughs> well we're working on new material uh, we're a band that tours, we're a band that writes and records music. And right now, obviously we're not touring um, because of the times. Um, I really miss being on stage, but this has been uh, an incredible time to get creative. And no matter where I am, whether I'm on tour or at home, I'm trying to be creative, but having my own little setup at home where I can record and write, uh, I've gotten a lot of work done in the last several months and the next album is almost complete, which is fantastic. So can't wait to get out that new material to our fans and to anybody that might not know Revolution. Um, just like other albums, the sound is a nice mix of things, a different blend of genres. Uh, so I think a lot of our fans will be pretty satisfied. And more than anything, I feel like it's just a great 
authentic representation of who we are, who I am as a writer. And uh, it feels good. Uh, you know, I really enjoy listening to my own music this time. And that's hard to say because I usually don't like my own voice and, and but this music, it, it feels really good. So I'm, I'm pretty stoked. Does the album have a name yet? It doesn't have a name. Um, although I've just been thinking about the concept of time for some reason, a lot of the lyrics uh, have to do with this notion of time. We're constantly thinking about where we have to be, uh, what time it is during the day, how time has flown by, um, the time it takes for, you know, uh, my, my garden to flower. Um, you know, th there's so many things regarding time. It's, it's really captivated me. And so I want the album to somehow be related to that concept. I'm not quite sure yet, but if you have any suggestions, I'm all ears. Well, I've been thinking about time a lot lately. And what's been occurring to me is that this work that we're up to, the whole cannabis tribe and all the other associated tribes, the psychedelic tribe and the reggae tribe and the honor the earth tribe, um, we are engaged in a struggle that is epical in scope. Uh, for the past several centuries, maybe the past couple of millennia, our civilization has been moving towards cutting itself off from nature, towards abandoning the teacher and visionary plants that Mother Nature has given us in order to educate ourselves, to, in order to allow us to keep on evolving into the future. And over that period of time, we have developed a, really a toxic industry and an industry, a way of making the things that we need to survive that is destroying the planet that we all depend on for life. And what we're doing now is we're trying to reconnect our hearts with our brains. We're trying to reconnect with Mother Earth. We're trying to build a life-affirming spiritual system and economic system that's going to allow us to live in a place of peace and justice and actually have an inhabitable planet to leave our children. So when we get discouraged, um, uh, when it seems difficult, it's like we're operating on a scale of time much greater than most people are even thinking about. We are operating on an epical scale of time. One thing I've been thinking about is um, sometimes I really feel let down by the older generation. And sometimes I feel like for them, time is very limited and there's less of a focus to, less of a focus on the children and just being a, a father. Um, I don't know how people could think like that. Um, to sort of leave the rest of humanity behind because their time is limited. And um, just with everything going on uh, with politics and thinking about um, people's time is so limited that, you know, I, I, I just wanna make sure that we encourage the youth. Um, and going back to this material that we're working on on the next album, um, that's a huge focus of ours to, to raise our children with the notion of acceptance, to be willing to listen. Because when I see a lot of older people, and they might even be 
family of mine or, or uh, friends, there's such a less willingness to be accepting of other people's opinions. And having an open heart, like you're saying, is so, so important for the youth to grow up with. Um, so I, I just wanna make sure that, um, well, I wanna make sure that, that people know um, when you, Steve, you're, you're starting something like The Last Prisoner Project, uh, you're doing that with, with an open heart. And I think a lot of people, um, especially in the older generation have given up hope. And you're a great voice for, uh, and a great tool of inspiration for people of any age to get on board, you know? And um, I really appreciate what you're doing, what this is all about. And just as I hope Revolution has encouraged people through the music, I know that doing what you're doing, Last Prisoner Project, and the activism that you're a part of is incredibly inspiring to uh, people of any generation. And that hope is very, very important. Uh, it's important to remind people that there is hope. It's hard to see sometimes, but it's there. And it takes sometimes a friend or a family member, a child uh, to, to feel that inspiration. So, you know, thank you for what you do. I think we're all really appreciative of, of this effort. Well, thank you, Eric. Thank you very much for, for being here today. And uh, I look forward to our next conversation. You know, across the breadth of the millennia and all across the globe, cannabis cultures have always made music one of our primary channels of communication and self-education. Part of the reasons for this is that we've been mostly excluded from other channels of information, like schools and cable TV and Hollywood films. Another reason music is always a part of cannabis culture are the awesome gifts of the many talented musicians who are a part of our tribe, who derive inspiration from the plant, who use it to get into the flow, to blend their individual efforts into a common groove, and then who bring to us their jewels and gems, their beautiful creations that light up our hearts, that strengthen and ennoble us, that bring us back in touch with that which is most eternal and most important. And then there's this more fundamental reason that our tribe embraces music. And that has to do with the effect of cannabis itself. Like music, cannabis engages our heart, brain, soul nexus to take us to another state of consciousness, a state of consciousness that is freed from the constraints of the default mode network, that frees us from the parts of our minds that have been programmed by government and television, a consciousness that invites us to consider the unconsidered, to think outside of the little boxes we've been forced into, a consciousness that teaches us how to align our everyday actions with the highest and most noble aspirations of our good hearts. These are the reasons that our tribe embraces both music and cannabis. That embrace arises from our love for each other, our love for all creatures. It arises from our understanding that the need for change is now urgent, that it's time for all of us to bring our actions in alignment with our hearts. We've learned 
through our own experiences, by listening to Mother Nature and by consuming her plants, by seeking the wisdom that lies within us, by singing for life and liberty, and by dancing with each other until a new dawn rises. And we will keep doing all of those things until we dance our way all the way home, all the way home to the planet of peace and justice that we really want to live in. And I promise, I promise you, all of you, that we will get there. It may not be in my lifetime, but it will be in the lifetimes of some of you who are listening to this. And I know that this goal may seem very far away to some of you. I know that some of you are in difficult conditions. You may have been arrested. You may be facing trial. You may even be in prison. You may have to hide your cannabis use from almost everybody around you. You may live in fear of being discovered. But know this, you are not alone. There are hundreds of millions of us all around the world. And we are not going to stop. And we are not going to rest until all of us, every single one of us, has safe and affordable and legal access to cannabis and the last of our prisoners comes home. Keep on tuning in. Keep on spreading the word. Keep on listening to that music. Keep on dancing. I'll see you next week.